This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, the local star of YTV's popularity papers, a Brampton designer on Setter Ice, and how recycled cell phones are repairing roads. But we begin with the impact of COVID-19. Here's Glenn Perkins. Dr. Rose Zacharias, president of the Ontario Medical Association, joins us today on The Feed. Dr. Zacharias, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. We've heard many stories about the impact COVID has had on businesses and the economy, but not too much until now has been said about the impact to mental health. What would you consider are the major non-physical effects of the pandemic? COVID-19 has not just taken a toll on our physical health, as you said, but our mental health has uh, seriously experienced an impact all across sectors of our society. We know the pandemic disrupted the global economy, uh, widened all sorts of inequalities, interrupted our children's education, and, uh, and as a parent also, and as a physician, I, I know that well. Um, and it forever changed really how we work, play, live, interact with one another. Uh, we know that the pandemic worsened the burnout uh, experience of frontline healthcare workers, and we are experiencing the impact of that. And so in many ways, our, our mental health, the isolation that the pandemic brought us about has, um, has really had a negative impact. Is it possible to correct these negative impacts? We do know that it's important to implement some positive change and support when it comes to uh, our mental health. From a physician's perspective, uh, representing the profession across Ontario, we know that even prior to the pandemic, we had poor, poorly embedded mental health supports in our communities. We know that most Uh, People go to their family doctors when they're um, experiencing depression, anxiety, and and many family doctors are are not really well set up to uh, provide that type of care to a complex complex issue. Uh, We want to equip family doctors with entire teams of allied support workers, more social workers, psychotherapists family therapists, behavioral therapists when it comes to uh, our, our children in schools and the disruption that um, our kids have experienced in schools, and, and then to also coordinate the care in the communities. There are mental health supports in the communities, but they don't talk to one another, and it's very difficult from a patient's point of view when you don't have a family doctor, for example, to help navigate the system to know where to find care. So not only do we need more care, but we need a better coordinated system and easier ways to access that care. Once the pandemic hit, it put immense pressure on healthcare workers, including doctors. What did you hear about the wellness of physicians and burnout? We polled our physicians prior to the pandemic, and at that point, physicians were reporting a 66% rate of burnout, which is high. So a lot of stressors in the system, not to speak of the individual resilience and capacity of physicians, that's extremely high. And every member of the healthcare giver team, extremely resilient and dedicated to providing high quality and safe care. But when there's fractures in the system that strain our ability to provide the care we want to, that's what leads to burnout. And so more recently, our rate of burnout has been measured at 
75%. So that's 75% of all physicians saying they're operating at a level of burnout. And, and I actually think you can't speak to a single doctor who doesn't know um, that our medical profession is, um, is feeling that effect. So it is just tremendously widespread. We know what contributes to it. To, to it. Uh, administrative burden, the, the lack of team-based supports. And so that's what we're wanting to tackle and work with government to implement some of those solutions. Dr. Rose Zacharias, president of the Ontario Medical Association, is with us today on the feed. Dr. Zacharias, the pandemic forced many of us to work from home and for students to turn to online learning. Research is showing that had a negative effect on students. What was happening here? Yes, we have become aware, even through academic study, uh, I was speaking with a sociologist from the University of Western Ontario who'd conducted a study on exactly this topic, the effects of the isolation and the increased screen time that um, we, were, we were experiencing, really, as a population uh, as a result of coming away from the in-person experience and sheltering in place and going to our virtual environment. And so this study that she was pointing to uh, showed an increase in online harassment, even uh, racism, body shaming, and other very harmful behavior that um, was uh, being experienced by our youth, particularly during the pandemic in the study that she did. And so we know that that has sometimes build over from the virtual experience into real life. She um, spoke of anecdotal um, teachers' experiences of being bullied in, in a classroom and also students um, bullied by one another. It, it, it speaks to, you know, the, the possible, we, we know that probably empathy um, needs to be taught in, in a school environment uh, more intentionally than, than, than it has in the past. Um, and to really pay attention to the importance of the socialization experience that we have and, um, and, and can help us with our behavior with one another in order to, to bring back that thoughtfulness, that empathy, and that kindness when we deal with one another in public. So it's, it's an important study. It brings out some of the very negative experiences of, of isolation and increased screen time, um, but I think it also points to areas of opportunity to improve that experience. The study showed that teens had increased anxiety and there was also talk about self-harm. Well, we know that mental health deterioration, depression, anxiety, and um, even, um, you know, the, the lack of support when someone is struggling often leads to, um, to even more negative experiences. And that's where self-harm can be part of a person's experience. And so it really does speak to the need for, for people to um, be able to access mental health supports in their community, for there to be a very clear, direct way to reach out for support, to decrease the stigma, first of all, and then for someone to know that this is a program in my community, this is my family doctor telling me that I can uh, call this 
counselor. This is uh, a social worker that can, um, can uh, and a psychotherapist and a family therapist that can walk us through this particular difficult season in, in our experience or our family's experience. And, and we just don't have that robust of mental health, community-based, team-oriented supports in our healthcare system, and we need to. Um, and so we we look to we're committed really to working with government inside of our publicly funded healthcare system to provide that type of support across the spectrum. And out of all of this, what has the health community learned that could be put into practice if we are forced to go through another situation similar to the COVID pandemic? Is it the mental health supports? Definitely an investment in mental health supports is key. We have a prescription for Ontario which outlines five key priorities around which we need to increase our investments, not only mental health and addiction supports, but long-term care, palliative and home care supports also catching up on the backlog of care. Many people are still waiting for surgeries and procedures that were uh, delayed as a result of dealing with the emergency of COVID and also providing everyone in Ontario a family doctor and, uh, and also, um, as we have been saying this entire call, an increase in the mental health and addictions supports. So our, our prescription for Ontario outlines key recommendations. We, we see the government acting on several of those, but we're committed to continuing to work with government to see our entire prescription taken up. Dr. Rose Zacharias, President of the Ontario Medical Association, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much for having me. And still with COVID, Ontario hospitals announced recently they will be easing masking protocols. Experts are seeing a plateauing of COVID cases since January. 19 million vaccine doses are set to expire at year's end. And Canadians are wondering when and if they should have their next booster shot, if at all. So this begs the question, actually two questions, where are we with COVID right now? And will this be the year that the virus is recognized as endemic here in Canada? Colin Furness is an infection control epidemiologist and has been very vocal throughout this COVID crisis, trying to separate fact from fiction, offering his insights and advice during these rather turbulent and confusing pandemic times. Great to have you back on the show, Colin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So the big question, where are we right now with COVID? There's no question now it's endemic, and that's actually not good news. A pandemic means it comes and goes, and so at least we can look forward to times when there isn't a lot of virus around. Uh, Endemic means that it's existing at a steady state, and for us it's bad news because that steady state is actually quite high. So it's not news anymore because it's not changing, but that constancy means there's a lot of illness in the population, and that's what concerns me. And what exactly is the definition of endemic? It means in an equilibrium, and equilibrium means a steady state. So we can look at measles as being endemic at a very low level. It's always around. It doesn't go away, but we just don't have very many cases. Flu is endemic, but it sloshes from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere um, every every year by season. And so we call that endemic too. It's it's with us. It's not going away. We've seen uh, an easing of almost every restriction that there was during the pandemic. And now hospitals are saying that they will be easing their masking mandates within their hospital settings. Uh, And it's very particular what they're going to be doing. Is that a good idea at this stage? 
I, I honestly couldn't think of a worse idea. Well, we know from data, and this was some investigative journalism that pulled this together two years ago, that a lot of COVID transmission happens in hospitals, that it's, it's not an uncommon story to go into hospital for one reason and to come out with COVID. Now, hospitals are particularly problematic because there's a lot of vulnerable people there. There are people there who are already ill. A lot of people who are there have no choice. And then, of course, it's a workplace for many thousands of people who also have their own risk factors to consider. So it's a, it's a congregate setting, a uh, living setting of a lot of people together in close quarters, many of them very vulnerable. This is, this is the last place that we should be actually letting our guard down. And so I'm, I, I really disagree with that decision. Now, if the hospitals were to say we have far ultraviolet light in every single room, if they were to say we have quadrupled our ventilation, if they were to say that they have taken other kinds of measures to make indoor spaces safe, then we can have that conversation. But if all we're doing is peeling away the last protection we have and, and pretending that COVID isn't going to fill that void, uh, I think we're living in denial, and that's a very unhealthy place to be. And what message is that sending to the average individual and some who really did not want to have vaccinations and did not want to mask? And does this say to them, you know what, doesn't really matter anymore. This is COVID is here to stay. Don't worry about it. You know, move on with your lives and don't bother protecting yourselves. Well, I guess there's a few different narratives and people tend to latch onto one or another. One narrative is COVID never existed. It was never a problem. And now we've proven that. Another narrative is COVID used to be really scary, but it isn't anymore. Now it's just a common cold. So we should be, we're fine. And the third narrative, which is the one I cling to is COVID continues to be a serious public health threat. And we are doing ourselves and everyone around us a real disservice by pretending it's not there or pretending that it's not serious. So you end up latching onto one of those three. And I I'm latching on to the least good news one, and it's the science-based one, and it's the one that I think ultimately we need to pay attention to if we want to become healthier and make leave a healthier world for our kids. So we need to take this seriously still. We need to protect ourselves, according to you. Do we need to continue to have vaccinations? I think... The best way to fight off COVID or any kind of future threat like this is always multi-layered. And so I think vaccinations, absolutely. Do we need better vaccines? Yes, we do. Are they in, in progress now in research? Yes, they are. So I think we can look forward to better vaccines. Until then, I know the recommendations now are simply people who are older and immune compromised and high risk to continue to get boosters. Um, I'm not a clinician, so I'm not going to tell anyone what they should do, but I'm going to continue to get every booster I can even though I understand it's diminishing returns, even though I understand that there's only incremental benefit, and even though I understand that pr protection against transmission is actually pretty modest, it does help protect against very severe disease. That matters. And the big one for me, it actually does help to some degree to prevent long COVID. And even an incremental protection against long COVID, which to me is the thing we really need to be concerned about, that's worth it to me. So that's, that's the way I'm coming down on that. But I do want to acknowledge the guidelines that say only if you're older or immune compromised. I, I just happen not to, not to agree with that. Colin Furness, as an infection control epidemiologist and always outspoken, and we really appreciate that, do you think it is your opinion that it's dangerous for us to kind of look back at the pandemic as if COVID-19 doesn't exist any longer. And that seems to be happening right across the country where people are saying, well, I remember during the, this is how I felt, this is what I did. In other words, they're feeling that it's over. 
I think it's enormously dangerous, and the reason why I think it's easy to look at COVID uh, or frame it in the rearview mirror is it used to be this scary respiratory disease that could kill you really quickly for which we had no treatment. Now we have treatment, but we also understand that COVID is not a respiratory disease, and what we need to be afraid of is the effect on our vascular system, on our brains, on our organs, on our lifespan on our ability to stave off diabetes. These are the things we need to worry about, but this is not what's getting paid attention to. COVID itself is now the third leading killer in Canada. That should, be, that should make anyone stop in their tracks and think maybe we need to pay attention to this, but it also is going to continue to cause a rise in cardiovascular disease, which happens to be the number one killer. So we're, we're, we're going to see a downward trend in life expectancy and population health. We need to pay attention to that. I don't want to hear any more about cases and hospitalizations and ICUs because I think that is, a, that is now at, a, at an equilibrium. What I really want to talk about is the long-term effects of infection and reinfection. That's what we need to talk about. In a sense, it's a whole new problem. It's not the COVID we had in 2020. It's chronic disease in the population that's going to make us all less healthy. That's the conversation we need to have. And maybe we need a different word than COVID in order to talk about it, in order to be able to talk about it. But I don't think it's going to be ignorable for long because it's going to get worse. You've been very vocal about all of this. Are people paying attention to what you're saying? You know, I'd like to see this as a pendulum. And the pendulum swings one way or the other way. We see it with politics. We see it um, in, in fashion and culture. And, and with respect to beliefs and COVID, you know, the pendulum was way at one end in 2020 when everyone agreed to stay home. That was unprecedented in terms of disruption of our lives and our willingness to band together. That's the pendulum way, way out of one end. And, and pendulums really don't like to be out of that extreme. If you pull them that far, they tend to swing the other way. And so the pendulum to me now feels like it's all the way at the other end, which is we are, we've got to ignore all the sickness around us. We just have to ignore it. We just have to pretend it's not there. I don't think that's sustainable either. So I want to see that pendulum come back to center where we do things like improve indoor air quality so that we can have fairly normal lives. I think that's sustainable. That's the pendulum in the center. So if we were way at one end with, with people agreeing to be locked down and then way at the other end with people being really reckless and, and in denial, um, I'm still searching for that middle ground and I hope gravity, <laughs> cognitive <laughs> gravity brings us there. Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist, thank you again for joining us on the feed. It's been so interesting. My pleasure, anytime. Coming up next, Behind the Scenes with Vaughn Fire. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. In all my years as a reporter, I've never seen a fire as massive and unpredictable as the one that roared through a housing development under construction in Vaughan on April the 12th. So many challenges, the obvious, knocking down this enormous fire, but also trying to keep it from spreading to nearby neighborhoods. It was wind-driven, which means firefighters often found themselves at the mercy of Mother Nature, but they did it. Vaughan Fire responded in a big way. They got control of it, they contained it, they put it out, and no lives lost. Here to walk us through the 
incredible events of that day is Deputy Fire Chief Grant Moffat, Vaughn Fire, who kept us all well apprised minute by minute as his firefighters were hard at it battling this massive blaze. Welcome to the show, Deputy Moffat. Thank you very much for being with us. May I call you Grant? Yes, you may. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for having me. So April the 12th, midday. Can you walk us through the steps when you got the call? So initially, we uh, we got the call um, at uh, one one eleven in the afternoon for re- re- responding to a uh, multiple homes on fire in a construction area at Teston and Pine Valley. Um, on route, uh, as trucks were responding, they uh, noted heavy smoke, so it was upgraded to an additional alarm assignment. So when the crews arrived, they uh, they found that there was at that time multiple dwellings on fire. And they began a uh, uh, an aggressive uh, defensive attack. When they arrived, how many units were on fire at that point? The initial report that I had uh, was three at that time. Um, two of them were pretty well fully involved, and the third was just starting to become involved. And Grant, why did this fire spread so quickly? Well, as many people seen from all these videos out uh, and the reports were the wind conditions that day. We had an extremely windy day and wind-driven fires are probably the the last friend of a firefighter that it spreads rapidly and with homes that are under construction or uh, are standing combustible materials that you have rapid fire spread. And in layman's terms, it means that at that stage of housing construction, it was a, a lot of material that was easily uh, set on fire. Is that correct? Wooden, yeah, wooden yeah. materials, and it uh, w- was wood structures standing uh, majority of that uh, area. So the crews arrive. How is it decided where they are going to tackle the fire first? The the officer in charge. Um, they pulled up. They picked their their area that they they knew that uh, the homes that were were involved fully wouldn't be the ones that you start with. You start to you pick your your area, you set up your lines, and you try to uh, um, strategically think of where the wind's moving, direction of fire travel. And what kind of equipment was used? We had um, on scene. We had thirteen apparatus. Um, with uh, varying from engines, which are pumper trucks, to aerial apparatus, which had the ladders and uh, water towers on them. And once the teams got a real sense of what was going on and how difficult this was going to be to knock down, was additional equipment requested? Yes, we we ended up with, uh, we had um, our uh, partners from other municipalities um, involved in the, not specific location, but we did have fire spread outside of um, grass fires and that, that they assisted uh, with that. But we had all hands on deck in Vaughan at that call. And we determined, uh, when I arrived, we determined where we were going to set up to draw as um, I said before, the line in the sand where we were going to stop this this fire. And let me ask you a couple of questions that just as, as somebody who was, I watched all of this unfold and as so many people did, and it was just, it was breathtaking, but it was absolutely frightening. Were eyes in the sky used? Did you have drone equipment so that you could get an aerial view of what was happening at minute by minute? We uh, actually, uh, um, thanks to York Regional Police, um, we u- utilized Air 2. 
they had it in the air and uh, through their command structure, I was able to get the uh, the video down to one of their units and I was able to track uh, the spread of fire outside the immediate area. We were concerned that um, due to the, the volume of, uh, of an, uh, fire and the wind, it uh, created a thermal column that was moving embers and debris. Um, our furthest fire was uh, 1.2 kilometers away. And let me ask you this, water, which is essential to putting out fires, uh, big or small, how well equipped were the fire hydrants in that area? This was an area that was under construction. Yes, um, the area under construction, it does have, have functioning hydrants. Um, we utilized uh, many hydrants in the area. Some of them weren't accessible because they were directly um, in the, the area of the fire that you could not uh, physically get to them due to the heat. And were pumper trucks brought in as well? Yes, yeah, we've, we had our, our, all our pumpers were there. We didn't uh, utilize any tankers because they weren't required due to the, uh, the adequate water supply we had. All right, so let's take a breath. Everybody is in place. The fire is raging. It's moving because it's wind-driven. How are decisions made about strategy in terms of where and why and how close can firefighters get in a situation like this? We, uh, we basically, st I met with my command team and we started uh, strategizing on where we were going to place um, uh, our staff and, and neighboring to assist with controlling it. Our, our goal was ultimately to keep it out of um, occupied homes and keep everybody safe. We knew at the time that uh, we could not get into the immediate um, building construction site due to the uh, heavy fire involvement and the, the winds. Uh, so with uh, our partners from York Regional Police, um, they assisted in notifying the, the parties on the uh, east side of the road, all the citizens, that they may have to leave their homes if this fire spread uh, became uncontrolled. But uh, we were successful in uh, containing it is part of your job and and really all emergency crews to explain very quickly but also to calm the nerves of those who may or may not be evacuated from their homes well through with the use of our um, york, york regional police partners we had them uh, reach out to the residents so they could at least inform them to if they were going to secure in place which meant um, put all your windows, close your windows, doors, etc., to keep the smoke migration out of your, your unit or home. Can you, Grant, describe what you saw from the time you arrived until the time when it was declared contained or out? I'm not sure which is the proper terminology, but what, what did you see and what was happening? When I first arrived on scene, uh, um, myself and the other deputy fire chief, uh, we seen just it was a wall of fire it was a firestorm it uh, it had spread to that many units so quickly that we now had to set up our strategy that how are we going to stop it and prevent it from getting into um, other neighborhoods we knew the wind direction w which it was coming from we knew it was coming to pine valley drive and we set up on pine valley drive to make the stop there and how did you finally get control of the fire? Uh, basically, it was through the hard work of uh, 
the members of the Vaughan Fire Service and uh, and our other responding partners to assist it. We set up our equipment, we set up our lines, and no doubt it, it's the. Um, I'm so appreciative of our the crews and the effort they put in that day. This was a an extraordinary event that you do not see in in your lifetime. Yeah, and you hope you never do again. How long did it? Yes. Yeah, how long did it take to get the fire under control? The fire, approximately, I would say, by four o'clock in the afternoon, three thirty, four oh. o'clock. We had a, we had the fire knocked down. We had a good we had a good control of that that scene. We were putting out hot spots. How do the men and women of Vaughn Fire train for something like this? Uh, we train day in and day out. It's uh, the old adage that you you make it second nature that you know that this is uh, your jo- your job. This is your what you're strive to do is to put fires out to pe- protect the lives and property. And when you watch the firefighters in action. What went through your mind, thinking about what was going through their minds? Um, it's my first thing is I want staff to be safe. I want the residents to be safe. I, I'm looking out for the, the safety of all everyone on scene. Uh, when we report there's no injuries or we report that everybody's accounted for, I, I take a I'm, oh. I'm take a breath that yes, it's uh, we've done what we can. Uh, now it's to deal with the property that we can put it out and we know where we've got no injuries. And when you do a debrief after, which I'm sure happened, and there were quite a few firefighters, so a lot of people involved in the debrief, what is said to the firefighters? Basically, it's uh, you, you go over your uh, what, what was done, um, initial assignments, subsequent assignments, and then what went well and, and what we can improve on. And we always look at uh, striving to improve. There was damage, obviously, uh, some irreparable, but even foundations were, were cracked as a result of this. Has there been any indication as to why the fire started and and a damage cost estimate? No, it's currently uh, under investigation with the Ontario Fire Marshal's office, and we were still awaiting a, a damage estimate at this time. And from your perspective as Deputy Chief Vaughn Fire, how would you describe that day and the work of Vaughn Fire? I, I, I don't think I have words to say how, uh, how proud I was to be with uh, um, these, these, this staff, the, the crews, everyone doing what they could to, to save pro- what property we could and to ensure lives weren't risked that day. And is there anything that we have learned, we as just community citizens of Vaughan and people just watching what happened that day, what can we take away from this? It's, um, it's basically that an emergency can happen at any time, and you can, it may not be any action of your own, but it may be around your community. And to, to, to be alert, to be ready to be evacuated, to be able to move out of your home if you have to and have a fire safety plan, escape plan, meeting spots, uh, and practice fire prevention in your home. No injuries, no lives lost. Absolutely incredible work by Vaughn Fire. I can't thank you enough for walking us through that day. Deputy Chief Grant Moffat, Vaughn Fire, thanks for joining us on the feed. Thank you, Ann.
Next, how recycled phones are used to identify road maintenance issues. Kevin Frankish with the City Rover. Well, just what does AI and pothole detection have to do with Earth Weekend? Visual Defense is a company based out of Richmond Hill, and they've created AI software for a product called City Rover. Roy Woods is its chief technical officer and joins me now to explain. Hello, Roy. Hello. Can you explain to me exactly what this uh, City Rover is? Yes, so City Rover is an artificial intelligence solution that transforms any vehicle into a data collection um, vehicle. We have a smart camera that goes in the vehicles. It finds potholes, manholes, and other deficiencies. It puts them on a cloud where cities can be more proactive in providing public service. How does this differ uh, now from, from scanning devices cities already use on roadways? So the difference is that our technology does continuous scan, meaning it's all the time in the vehicle. So cities typically will have um, like specialized service providers go and collect the data, where ours collects data all the time. And this note, we, we said, what does this have to do with Earth Weekend? So I ask you, what does this have to do with a greener environment? Absolutely. So when we are thinking about greener environment, cities basically today um, have patrol vehicles that go around looking for different things to uh, take care of. So our technology basically helps the cities to um, share vehicles across different departments. So we have different vehicles that can collect different data for different departments. So we can displace some uh, kilometers there as well. So, when, so uh, you know, say a parks and recreation vehicle, um, you know, out to clean the parks could also be working to monitor the roadways at the same time. Absolutely. Same for garbage trucks, street sweepers, and any city vehicle. There's something here, too, that I'm, I'm reading about um, uh, using old cell phones. Yes, that is correct. So what we have is we basically take uh, cell phones that would be discarded, and we transform them into smart cameras uh, right here in our office. So there's a, a nice element where we actually recycle uh, electronics for this application as well. And you can also make sure that, that the rest of the phone that is discarded gets discarded properly. Correct. I've never really thought about that before. I've always thought about the batteries being recycled, um, but I've never really thought. You know, when you, when you upgrade to a new cell phone, your camera is still pretty good. Yep. That is correct. So the battery is actually the only part, or I'm going to say the most likely part on the phone to diminish. So if we remove the cam the, the battery and just transform the phone to be a camera, we essentially have a really, really uh, kick-ass strong computer yeah. used for this. And and with the latest, uh, the latest developments in AI, this is this is just one example of how AI can be used for the benefit of, of a municipality. Correct. This is just uh, one one example. So we are working now to add so many more things to it. And the idea is that these devices um, in the future will be able to pretty much pick up any sort of a problem that a person's eyes could pick up. So this this is where we're really investing our time and in, in, in adding capabilities to these phones. And so far now, uh, you're out of Richmond Hill. Is, is Richmond Hill or any other municipality within the region uh, using this technology yet? Yes. So we're working, of course, with Richmond Hill. Richmond Hill has been uh, the first city in Canada that we uh, joined forces to develop this technology. We've uh, expanded to uh, deploy this in more uh, municipalities in uh, in, the, in York region, including, for example, the city of Markham and others as well. And actually... Uh, 
coast to coast uh, in Canada and the United States, we've partnered with more than 200 cities oh. already in development of this technology. All right. More information, go to visualdefense.com. Roy Woods, the uh, CTO uh, from Visual Defense, has been my guest. Thanks, Roy. Thank you, Kevin. Making solar simple, smarter, and more affordable. That's the mission of Solify. Tina Cortez sheds some light on this full-service solar provider as we celebrate Earth Day. Axel Hermosa is the founder of Solify. Welcome to the show, Axel. Hey, thank you so much for having me here. Okay, so tell us more about your Watt for Watt program and how it distinguishes you from your competitors. Well, Watt for Watt was founded um, basically because I'm half uh, Indigenous. Uh, my mom is Native, and obviously we've heard a lot about, um, you know, difficulties out there maybe for clean water and uh, the energy crisis. So the Watt for Watt program, what we found is we wanted to give back. Uh, so every time we make a solar sale, a portion of those funds are dedicated to build microsystems uh, across Ontario for Indigenous communities. So what does the future look like in terms of Solify? Uh, the, f- the future is, um, it, it's, it's amazing. Um, obviously, we've seen what's happened in the electricity market. Mm-hmm. It's gone up over 130% in the past 10 years. We see what's happening with the gas market. Um, and we obviously see what's happening with the phase out of fossil fuels and the push to electric vehicles. So what we see is, um, you know, the future is very bright. We've, we strongly believe that there's no reason people should be paying for energy when there's this big ball of fire that produces enough energy in, you know, an hour to power the whole planet. So we're really, really excited for what we're about to roll out. And what's your message to maybe those homeowners who think, you know what, those solar panels look great, good idea, but it's too expensive or it's just too challenging to install? What do you want to say to them? Well, the great thing about the program is luckily it's backed by government funding now. So there was a program that was launched called the Canada Greener Homes Initiative. So for the homeowners that do think it's too expensive, what we say is if you can afford your next gas and hydro bills, you can afford going solar. Because the true beauty is when you do install solar, the government is going to give you up to $40,000 with 0% interest over 10 years. They're also going to give you a $10,000 grant which means you don't have to pay it back in order to help you facilitate the installation. So if we were to eliminate your gas and hydro bill, maybe that saves you $300 or $400 a month, those savings would cover the loan payment. So not only would it pay for the system, but once the system is paid off, every homeowner has free energy on their property guaranteed for 25 years. So we're proud to say we're complete turnkey. We would be able to process all government applications, conduct the energy audits, as well as help them obtain their funding and, of course, procure the installation. So other than cost savings and government incentives, what do you want homeowners to know about Solify? Well, the great thing about Solify is we are a net zero company. We don't just provide solar. We do everything from heat pump technology, heating, cooling, water heating, attic insulation, as well as solar and battery storage. So our whole goal is to eliminate both homeowners' gas and hydro bills. But we want everyone to know that at the end of the day, uh, we strongly believe we're the first and the last generation that can do anything about climate change. So uh, we, uh, one message we could give out uh, to every homeowner is it doesn't make sense to, you know, pay for your gas and hydro bills when there is the cheapest commodity on earth available, which is solar, and it'll be funded purely by the government. What is the maximum solar system you can get on a house? 
Well, we build everything based on your needs. With the net metering program that's offered uh, in Ontario, all the electricity that your system produces, your home uses. So anything excess will be sent into the grid. So the maximum size, uh, there's no real maximum. We're, we're going to build it for your needs. So if your hydro bill is $150, bucks, we will build a system for that. If your hydro bill is 500 a month, we'll build a system for that. Axel, this is Earth Month, but this sounds like it is truly a passion project for you. Where did that passion come from? Well, I've been in, um, you know, the heating, cooling, and water heating space for about 12 years now. Um, I've seen a lot of homeowners uh, be taken advantage of on, you know, um, not good programs with predatory financing. And I've just seen what's happened in the gas and hydro markets. Um, You know, being a homeowner myself and, you know, speaking with probably 100,000 homeowners over my career, um, I've seen the biggest concern that every single person has is that monthly expense. So for me, I believe that if I had the ability to show homeowners how they could save money, I would be doing a disservice if I didn't build a company in order to help facilitate, um, you know, that, that exact, that exact reason. Do you see the interest in solar power growing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at what happens in the States, they were two years ago, only 0.5% market penetration. They're now at 4%. You can Google this fact. There is a solar system being installed every minute across the States. When it comes to Canada, there's been a lot of myths about solar, people thinking you can't get you know, solar in the winter. But the fact of the matter is you can. So we see that this market is booming. Even for us, uh, we're overworked. (laughs) And uh, there is just so much, so much room to grow in this market. And what if we do nothing in terms of getting involved and creating this cleaner, greener world? Hey, well, at the end of the day, uh, whether we like it or not, we're going to have bills next month. We're going to have gas and hydro bills until we die. So whether we pay the gas and hydro companies or we purchase a solar system, no matter what, we're paying the money. And I confidently believe, like I mentioned, um, if we don't do something about climate change, we're going to have some adverse effects that happen. Um, and, and there's no telling. There's no telling. We're seeing what's happening with the polar ice caps. We're seeing what's happening with the ozone layer. We're seeing that the whole nation is pushing towards a green green future, um, something that is renewable. And there has to be a reason why the top professionals and scientists in the world are pushing towards green programs. So um, I think if we don't, I mean, there's no, no telling, but one thing for sure is we'll end up spending a lot more money than we need to. If our listeners want more information about solar panels and Solify, where can they find it? Uh, they can visit solify.ca, that's S-O-L-I-F-Y dot C-A, or they can call us at 888-303-6252. Axel, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. After the break, a designing woman. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This next story celebrates the diversity of Brampton and the game of hockey. Jim Lang with the Jersey Designer. Anyone who watched the Women's World Hockey Championships that recently took place in Brampton maybe noticed a stunningly beautiful version of the classic Team Canada jersey. It was created by a teacher, an author, a creative writer, and a brilliant mind. Sandy Gill joins us today in the feed. Sandy, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I have been in sports for over 30 years, and I've seen every version of Jersey I could think of. I have 
I don't remember ever being so blown away and had my breath taken away by your design. I want to hang it on the wall in my rec room and stare at it, but I want to wear it with my boys playing hockey. I mean, it's it's functional art. I've never seen anything like it. I'm I'm so happy to hear that, and I'm so grateful that exactly what I intended, the feelings that I wanted um, people to feel, um, you felt. So thank you so much for that. I know Hockey Canada reached out to you to talk about designing a special jersey at the Women's Worlds in Brampton, and and you touched on a, a number of different things as you as you were going through your different designs. Sandy, did it come about organically? Was there trial and error? How how did it all come together to this beautiful product that we see now? Um, so there there definitely was some trial and error. I think when they approached me with the design, I. I brainstormed and I had a couple of ideas of how I wanted to execute this visually. Um, I do a lot of wearable art um, in, in the designs that I create and even in my own fashion. Um, I do a lot of that. So I just wanted to brainstorm and think of ideas that could reflect my community in the best way. Um, and then there were some trial and error, but I, I pretty much knew from the beginning that I wanted to work with fabrics just because growing up in Brampton, I was surrounded by different fabrics and textiles from all the different communities that live in Brampton. And so that was where my my brain immediately went. And so uh, trial and error was just like placement and how we really wanted things to be laid out and timing. And um, But um, ultimately, we were able to come up with something that was very close to my original uh, design and in some aspects also exceeded that. Oh, you exceeded it. You can follow Sandy on Instagram. She's a great follow at the Sandy Lion. Speaking with the amazing Sandy Gill, who's a teacher, an author, creative writer, and the designer of this brilliant Team Canada jersey that we witnessed at the recent Women's World Hockey Championships. And, you know, when you posted the photos on your Instagram, you never really know what people are going to say. I can't remember Sandy. As a longtime hockey observer and sports observer, anything that was so universally embraced and loved as people's reaction to the jersey. I'm I'm speechless. I don't. I I feel like this is this is my intention. The work that I do. I've I've done these sorts of collaborations with brands before. I created a um, T-shirt last year with uh, Reitman's, which is a Canadian brand. And oh yeah, that T-shirt. Yeah, that T-shirt was designed to represent my um, my community, my uh, Punjabi community, and so and that design as well was just loved and sold out. So I guess you know, working with me, you know, you'll get something good. I might <laughs> toot my horn a little bit, but um, aside from that, yeah, I think it's 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 my inspiration. It's the children, the people that I spend my day to day with. Um, of course, like the if, if I'm cognizant of my surroundings that that's going to be reflected in the work and i think working in brampton being around diversity in the way that i am it's it's going to come out in the work for sure without a doubt i I know sandy COVID affected everyone the lockdown uh how our family changed and evolved and it sounds like yours did as well reconnecting with your family with your roots and it involving as a person as an artist to what we see right now yeah, so many different things. Like um, prior to COVID, I was living in New York City. I had um, decided that I was going to full-on pursue fashion and uh, put teaching on the back burner for a bit and try to just, you know, 
pursue my creative endeavors. But I, through that time, I realized that there's so much about me that thrives off of being a teacher and being in the classroom. And it, it feeds into the creativity that I, um, that I have. And so it just was such a great reminder of going back to my roots and, you know, reflecting on the immigrant hustle, my parents, my teaching experience, and ensuring that that's a part of my day-to-day. Because if it's, if it is part of my day-to-day, then we know that the creative work is going to, going to be great because the inspiration, the feel behind it is uh, for real. I, I'm looking at this uh, stunning jersey. Uh, can people, are there area people able to buy it was you know what i mean is it one of a kind is there a few different ones available how does that work sandy so there we had designed five um different they're they're pretty much the same but the backs of all of them are slightly different just Mm -hmm. to reflect all the different fabrics that we had got um so other than that there are a set of jerseys that are just going to be used for gifting and uh, there will be one at City Hall in Brampton. I get to keep one. And then one is going to be at the Hockey Hall of Fame. You're going to the Hockey Hall of Fame, Sandy? I'm, I'm going to the Hockey Hall of Fame. Wow. I, I, I mean, that's. <laughs> did you ever think in your wildest dreams this girl from Brampton would be in the Hockey Hall of Fame? Absolutely not. It's not even something that was even on the bucket list because I didn't know that it was possible because... You know, I, I haven't seen that with people who look like me. It, it just, just isn't, has never been a reality. So I think that um, I'm definitely pinching myself. But so happy that this is happening and so many other young people can aspire to just go for it. Well, if you think you're happy, I'm thrilled. Follow her, the Sandy Lion, Sandy Gill, a, a, an artist, a teacher, a creative writer, a Canadian that we all need in our life. Sandy, I can't thank you enough for talking to me and talking to our listeners, and you make this country a better place. Thank you so much. Oh, oh, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to speak to you today. Thank you. Shaliza Back is now with the star power from York Region when it comes to the small screen. We've got so much talent that comes from right here in York Region, and I've got another talented actress to share with you. 12-year-old Glee Dango is from Stolville, Ontario, and she stars in the new YTV show, Popularity Papers, and she joins me now to tell us all about it. How are you, Glee? Hi, I'm really excited to be here. I'm good. How are you? I'm great, and we are so excited to have you. Now, as I mentioned, you're 12 years old, you're from Stolville, Ontario, and you're on a TV show. That is a lot for a 12-year-old. Oh, yeah, but it's really exciting. And tell me how it's exciting. And how are you balancing it with school as well? Well, it's super exciting getting to work with such amazing and creative people. And I know a lot of my um, peers on set, such as Millie Davis and Callum Shoniker, they're also in York Region and they're so talented. But in general, it's kind of a more difficult work-life balance as... I'm away a lot from school, but honestly, I don't really mind. (laughs) I don't see how you would. And is this something you've always wanted to do? Well, from the get-go, I was put into a dance class, and I knew that I loved to perform. And so that led into some modeling gigs, and I did that until I was about five or six. And that's when I really started to get into commercials, some more TV shows such as Odd Squad and Ukulele U when I was about nine and 11. And now I'm 
the star on a TV show on YTV. Yeah, you are. <laughs> that is that is so exciting. So this show is called Popularity Papers, and you play the character Julie Graham Chang. Can you tell us about the show and about your character? Yeah. So Popularity Papers is about two best friends, Julie and Lydia, who are on a mission to crack the popularity code. They do a bunch of experiments on their friends and classmates, and every episode ends with a lesson that teaches us about kindness, caring, and being yourself. Julie Graham Chang specifically, my character, she is described as more of an introvert, but she always sticks by Lydia's side, and they're best friends through and through, and they always do things together. As best friends should, and do you feel like there are qualities that Julie has that you can also connect to? So actually, funny thing, when I first got the audition, I was kind of like, whoa, this is a really hard character to play because I'm almost polar opposite from Julie. But as I started doing the series, I actually started to find that I have a little bit of Julie in me. <laughs> and I hope that everyone that watches the show also can find a little bit of Julie or find another character that they can connect to. I love that. And what are some of your favorite qualities of Julie that you feel like your audience would be able to connect to? I think Julie is very kind and she supports everyone around her. She just never really puts anyone down for who they are. And I really hope that people can find that connection and hopefully do the same. 12-year-old Glee Dango from Stouffville, Ontario. And if our listeners want to catch Popularity Papers, where can they watch it? You can find it on YTV Mondays at 6 p.m. and on Stack TV. Amazing. Love to hear it. And Glee, I wanted to ask you one more thing. Are you on social media or are you kind of just like in that weird gray area where your parents are still kind of uh, helping you out with it? Well, yes, I am definitely on social media. Um, my mom does most of the posting on Instagram, though. Facebook, still my mom. Mm -hmm. My mom does a lot of my social media things. <laughs> but I kind of just surf around and see what there is. Check me out on Instagram, too at glee.dango. All right. And if you had any maybe tips for kids your age who are on social media, you know, it's it's really difficult right now to kind of navigate through a lot of things. How would you advise them? I would say definitely if you're unsure of posting something, check with a parent, see what they think about it. Also, be safe and definitely check who's following you and who's commenting because I know it's a very dangerous place, things can happen. And also certain things about hate comments and things like that. Don't take them seriously. Don't let them get to your head. You do you. Yeah, I like that. That's the best way to put it. You do you. Glee Dango from Popularity Papers once again airs on YTV on Monday nights. Thank you so much, Glee. Thank you so much. I've had a great time today. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.